Hello and welcome to the Healthcare Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Healthcare Podcast, where we bring you the topics, insights, thought leaders, and discussions that may just change the way you think about healthcare. On today's episode, we're going to talk about how the skills gap in healthcare is leaving patients behind. It is no secret that organizations are struggling across the board. For temporal context, the date is December 3rd, 2021. We have been dealing with the ups and downs of the coronavirus for two years. While the economy has been hit hard, we seem to be in a new territory, faced with something that many did not see coming, the great resignation. With millions of workers quitting, carrying the brunt of an exiting workforce are hospitals and healthcare settings that cannot stay fully staffed. Despite our desire to blame this all on COVID, the groundwork has been laid for years, if not decades leading up to the staffing crisis we are now seeing in healthcare. To talk about why that is and perhaps what we can do about it, I am joined today by Jeffrey M. Roche. Jeffrey is the Senior Vice President of Workforce Development at Dignity Health Global Education where he works to ensure that healthcare professionals are equipped with the skills, knowledge, and education they need to thrive in their roles, impact the organizations they're in, and make a difference to the lives of others. He is an accomplished leader with steadfast commitment and passion for healthcare innovation, future-focused strategy, transformation, and workforce impact. His professional career has included over nine years in hospital administration, where he served as a strategic advisor to the president and CEO, and department director of various departments, including business development and planning, government affairs, community health, and public relations for Lehigh Valley Hospital, Pocono. Jeffrey has served in senior leadership roles at two academic institutions where he led strategic partnerships, organizational strategy, and business development for both Lebanon Valley College and Harrisburg University of Science and Technology. He has significant experience creating high impact partnerships. He is also an adjunct professor, instructor of health administration in the MBA MHA program at Moravian University, serves on the United Way of Lebanon County and United Way of Pennsylvania Board of Directors, IU 13 Board of Directors, Leadership Council for Moravian College, Patient Safety Committee for Wellspan Good Samaritan Hospital, and has an elected school director of Anvil Cleona School District. He holds a BA in political science from Moravian College and an MS in public administration from East Stroudsburg University in Pennsylvania. Welcome to the show, Jeffrey, and thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Preston. Thanks for having me. That was quite the introduction. I am a little bit intimidated, to be honest with you, but I'm really excited because you have this really amazing background, education, healthcare, you know, on the administrative side, you've seen a lot on both sides of the coin. So really pumped. And, you know, just for everybody watching, listening, um, I'd love to just hear a little bit more from your words about your background and, you know, how you got into healthcare and, and where you are today. Sure. Well, again, thanks for having me and, and uh, don't be intimidated because uh, I think, you know, all of us have, you know, humble uh, beginnings. And so I always tell people uh, why I got into healthcare really, I have to say in many ways was because of my mother, my mother's a nurse. Um, and, you know, the influence that she had, you know, each and every day talking about the work that she was doing, uh, certainly had, you know, an impact on me. Uh, I never knew, always knew I wouldn't go clinical. Um, that was for sure. That just wasn't uh, where I felt I could add 
uh, value and really be effective. But uh, through that, you know, relationship with my mom, um, and then when I was in college, uh, having an opportunity actually to do an internship at Lehigh Valley Health Network, it really was that internship in addition to my mom's influence that really, you know, said to me, hey, uh, the work that you've done, I had done some work in government, had worked for a state senator, worked for a state representative here in Pennsylvania, um, probably knew, you know, that's not going to be, you know, the, the right next step for me. Uh, to continue that work, I could do that, you know, while also doing a more professional type of work uh, that I chose. And really, after that internship, was lucky to get, you know, my first position at what was then Pocono Health System. Um, and then ultimately, we became part of Lehigh Valley Health Network. So uh, that was really the first foray uh, into healthcare. Um, again, started in a, a non-clinical uh, administrative role. Um, and then, as, as you described, you know, worked my way into uh, leadership. Um, and I know what, you know, during our conversation, we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, because I had the fortune, maybe misfortune at times, uh, depending on how people viewed it as being the youngest leader there. Um, and so certain people, you know, would say different things and, you know, had different opinions on, on what that looked like and how that, how that was viewed. So happy to talk further about that as well. Yeah. So just for context, like how old were you in some of those leadership positions? Like, did you, do you have a team or you're like, Fresh out of school, like 24, I mean. Yeah, so when I was first promoted um, and uh, became a director and then uh, inherited uh, a position that didn't, you know, initially report to me, um, I was at the age of, uh, so I would have graduated 2022, so around 25. And, um, you know, joining the management team uh, of a healthcare system, you know, where generally most leaders uh, we're in their 40s, 50s, 60s. Mm. Uh, that was really interesting. But I will tell you that one of the most uh, important pieces of advice my boss then, the president and CEO gave me, was um, she said, first of all, I'm going to promote you because I believe in you. Second of all, there may be people who don't believe in you, but you're going to work as hard as you do each and every day and prove them wrong each and every day. And so go out there, do what you do best, build those relationships externally prove the value that you bring to this organization. And guess what? The ones that don't believe in you, you're going to pass them by, by miles. And so, you know, it was always interesting from that perspective, because, um, you know, having a, a mentor uh, and a leader uh, who literally was at the top, other than the board of directors, uh, to say that to you, uh, really, in many ways, was um, advice that lives with me to this day. Um, and when I've you know, supervised and led teams, the first thing I say to them, is, I don't care how old you are. I don't care how much experience you have. We all have something we can contribute. And if we row in the same direction, we can contribute so much more. And so, you know, that has always been uh, the type of person I am. It's never about experience or never about age. For me, it's about the fact that if we work together, we can achieve so much more. Yeah, that's great advice and great perspective. I think, you know, it sounds like she was an incredible leader and, and believed in her people and gave you the tools you needed. So, I, and I was, we were going to jump into this later, but let's jump into it now um, before we go back up to the beginning. Um, question that just popped into my mind, you know, leadership, it, it does sound like, obviously we've been talking for 72 seconds. So, you know, but, but that you almost have like an innate quality to you you know we've spoken before and you know it, it comes across that I mean that you have this leadership quality it sounds like your mentor had it do you think that it's sort of one of those you either got it or you don't 
or are there ways that people can work on and become better leaders? Yeah. So I don't believe in any way it is you either have it or you don't. I firmly believe that, that um, you, you, there are some people who may have more aspects of leadership mm. uh, just innately. Um, you know, for example, certain people are better communicators. Certain people are better relationship builders. Certain people uh, can motivate in a very different way than others. But when you look at leadership, I'm a firm believer that it's situational, first of all. And so I can walk into one, one you know, situation into another and, and have to act very differently. Fortunately, those of us that have been in healthcare have the privilege in many ways, sometimes not, but, but most of the time I would say a privilege that we have to react, you know, with various different situations, whether we're clinical or non-clinical. You know, I, I, I do firmly believe that leadership is all about coaching. And so I'll give you an example. I had a phenomenal team member that uh, truly I had the privilege of working with that I worked with for many years before she became a part of my team. And I angled for her to become a part of my team. And the reason was, is because I saw how many leaders failed her to make her believe she couldn't become a leader in our organization. And this is someone that um, to this day is one of my best friends. And I uh, can remember the day I said to her, I've got some news for you, you're reporting to me. And she started to cry. And I, and I said, this, uh, I, I feel bad, you know, maybe I, I shouldn't have done this. And she said, no, no, no. I actually finally have someone that's going to believe in me. And so, you know, leadership in a lot of ways is having that person believe in you. My president and CEO, who to, to your point earlier, um, I will often say I owe so much to uh, in debt of gratitude. Uh, and when I say that and I tell her, I say that and she always says, please don't. But I always do because what she did for me is what she did for so many people. And I learned from her really the art of servant leadership, which we know is often thrown out as, oh, I'm a servant leader, but then people yeah. aren't. And I firmly believe if we had more servant leaders in healthcare, we wouldn't be dealing with the great resignation uh, that we are today. And so I do not believe leadership is innate. Um, I, I strongly believe that with mentorship, coaching, and true authentic walking alongside somebody, you can bring them along. And that's the, that is the beauty of what I saw with this colleague of mine, where um, you know, she was an EMS leader, well-respected by every EMT and paramedic in the entire region that we served. And yet internally, people looked at her as she was a secretary because that's what she was for many years. Mm -hmm. Yet she built the EMS strategy for our healthcare system. Her work is what led into us acquiring for the first ever time an EMS agency. And uh, when I fought, and I mean had to fight, not physically, uh, but in a very advocacy type of manner with human resources to promote her. The first thing I got from the VP of HR was, well, she doesn't have a college degree. And I looked back at that VP of HR and I said, well, with all due respect, there are many people, including some that have reached the vice president level at this organization that didn't have a college degree. So if you want to go there, I'm happy to go there. And so, uh, you know, ultimately uh, that changed uh, with the support of my senior vice president uh, we were able to get her promoted. And the work that I saw that she did and continues to do today, I look back and say, there's a perfect example where a little bit of support, coaching, mentoring, encouragement, empowering, let her become not just a phenomenal leader, but a very impactful one. Love that story. That's incredible. And it, 
it's really interesting to me too. I mean, a lot of about it is interesting and certainly speaks to your caliber as, as a leader, um, but that you are also in this educational role, promoting and, and creating partnerships and working in higher education, you know, bringing them together. And yet on, at the same time, you have this person that you saw knew was super capable and almost, you know, the higher education, you know, college degree, what have you was a, would have, was, was sort of an afterthought or after the fact or, or not even relevant maybe. So let's go, let's go back a little bit just for like some more context. And then we'll come, I want to come back to this because it is really an interesting topic. And I think we're going to get there. But so tell me just like a little bit more about uh, Dignity Health Global Education and, you know, what you do from that standpoint. And we're going to, we're going to go there and then we're going to come back to this, you sure. know, notion of that higher education in healthcare. Yeah. So, um, you know, Dignity Health Global Education was founded by Dignity Health, which now obviously, as you know, is part of Common Spirit. Mm. Um, and uh, when, when Dignity Health Global Education was founded by Dignity Health, it was really at the principle that healthcare has historically not thought of uh, transforming the workforce for the future. Mm -hmm. Meaning, you know, with education, with training, with skills, we've done things the way we've done for a very, very long time. And we have not thought in an innovative fashion about what that looks like to ensure we're prepared for the changes we're all seeing and experiencing uh, right now. Mm -hmm. And so uh, back in 2019, so obviously before the pandemic, uh, this work started and it was very much focused on, you know, it's not all about and, and, and can't be all about. And as you know, healthcare still very much thinks of this, that it's all gotta be about a college degree. Mm -hmm. Yes, we do have academic partners that offer uh, degrees at both the undergrad and graduate level, but we have predominantly uh, really focused very much on the certificate level mm -hmm. because we strongly believe that there are people in healthcare from an upskilling end, from a reskilling end that can benefit just as much from that opportunity as they can from a college degree, uh, whether at an undergrad or graduate level, because not every position should require even an mm -hmm. undergrad. Um, and I know when there's HR folks hearing this, they will shake their heads and you know what? I will continue to preach it because it's the fact of the matter. And, and our healthcare system has continued to make it harder for themselves to staff so many areas. I get it, clinical, very different. Yeah. Um, but in non-clinical areas where we're dealing with great resignation as well, we have made it more difficult than ever and have continued to for far too long. And so our work is really at, at that level of skills-based. Yes, we still have very uh, cost-effective, affordable you know, undergrad and graduate partners as well, but it's very much also about making sure that everything that's developed is developed through a healthcare lens. So the difference here is, is that yes, you have the faculty at the academic institution, mm -hmm. but we also bring in subject matter experts from healthcare that are still in healthcare today to work with the faculty. So instead of just having faculty who bless their hearts are wonderful at what they do, they may not still be practically doing the work that they're teaching. And so we bring them together with healthcare leaders that are still practically leading as a, as a chief nursing officer, as a CEO, as a CMO, as a director, whatever, bring them in, develop that customized content with them. And then as it rolls out, refine it with them. And so that process is very, very different. And it really makes sure that it's developed for healthcare by healthcare. Got it. So going back to, to, you know, the, the woman you spoke about and, you know, getting her into those leadership positions, she didn't have, you know, a college degree, but had the skills 
and, and the experience and, and the qualities that you want to, and Dignity Health Global Education wants to bring to people. You know, it, it doesn't have to be about a college degree or an MBA or what have you, but it, it, it's really like those things may end up being byproducts, but it's about really the, the skill, experience, practical, applicable knowledge. Well, yeah, and the reality of it is, is that, do you know what the solution from HR was? Well, we, we, we should make her get a bachelor's degree before you promote her. Yeah. That's what their solution was. And That's I a said, great solution. She should I get said, to learn um, biology and physics and- Yeah, so calculus. I said, well, four years later, so you're going to make her wait for four years when you know, if I walked right out of the four walls of this healthcare system today and said to the people who she works with, would you promote her? they would say absolutely yes. Mm -hmm. And so for four years, I'm going to sit here and wait, not promote someone who, who, who needed to be promoted. Could guess, guess what? When we acquired that ambulance company, they couldn't report up to me because I wasn't clinical. So they had to report up to someone that was clinical who mm -hmm. then reported up to me right. uh, in an administrative capacity. But, but again, you know, I was fortunate to have a senior vice president who agreed with me mm -hmm. um, and who fought that fight you know, with me um, and, and, you know, fortunately for us, we won, but you know, that's not the case in so many places today where you got to have a college degree. Yeah. I get it. You know, when we're talking about clinical areas, I get it. Yeah. Um, but even there, I'll challenge some areas too, that, that there are, there are ways and opportunities that we've got to reinvest in experiential learning in ways uh, more than ever, you know, through AR, VR, um, and through other, you know, uh, technologies like that that, you know, for clinical skills and simulations and such, it's, we're in 2021. Uh, you know, we're not in the 1960s and 70s and 80s of healthcare, yet we're still practicing in many, like, many ways like we are. Yeah, it's refreshing to hear you say, I was like, I was honestly expecting like a slightly different bend to, to the discussion, considering that, you're, you know, you're a professor, you have higher education degrees. My stepdad was a dean of a university for 17 years and a president of the university for six years. So like, I totally get it. And usually that lens is your, your college degree is basically your high school degree. And if you really want to go anywhere, you need a graduate degree kind of a thing. So, you know, hearing you say, and, and I don't necessarily believe that. And so hearing you say that, especially from a global, you know, education standpoint is great because I, I totally agree that, you know, yeah, there's sometimes where I wish I could go to a program like, I don't care about the degree. I just want the knowledge and the skills. And I want to be able to do it in a condensed fashion versus to go to work for six years where I could do a degree in or a certificate in one or two. Well, and a good, a good example of this is if you would look in just the United States alone, majority of healthcare systems do not do tuition reimbursement or any tuition support for certificates. Oh. Now, however, yeah, yeah. there may be areas at an executive level that they may pay for certain programs like through mm -hmm. Harvard or, you know, those types of things. But the reality of it is, is that our system is still set up where, you know, they only truly do tuition reimbursement for degree programs. Um, and, you know, I, I think that that's an area where I don't say this because I, I you know, I want to just see revenue come to Dignity Health Global Education mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, Yes, that's where uh, I have the privilege of serving. But the reality of it is, is that if we want to truly impact healthcare, if we want to truly impact, you know, the trajectory of dealing with leadership challenges, you know, truly deal with diversity, equity, inclusion, deal with generational leadership and the whole host of elements such as that, 
we've got to think differently about the educational model within every industry, but particularly uh, within healthcare, um, because you know the idea that for everything you got to have a college degree pretty much mm-hmm. um, isn't working. Uh, and and we all know, I was just talking about this earlier today. The supply isn't there. So do you just continue with what you've done for a hundred years or do you change your trajectory? Yeah. And that's where I think, you know, we've got to get people um, to be thinking about that. But, you know, Preston, when it truly comes down to it within healthcare, and I don't say this in any disparaging way, it all comes down to the fact that we've siloed these types of decisions in one department or another. And so historically, when we talk about what's required in positions, it's through human resources. Mm. Um, again, not disparagingly in any way, but, but we've got to think of the asset of our people across the whole enterprise and not just in human resources. So it has to be viewed as strategic. It has to be viewed as transformation. It has to be viewed as value and quality. And so we've got to elevate how we think of staffing our healthcare workforce outside of just HR and really view it as across the entire enterprise and really be, you know, thinking very strategically and tactfully about how you do that appropriately. That's great. I totally agree with you. And it actually leads me a question I really wanted to ask because, you know, we talk about these things. I think people think about these things in terms of, you know, the organization internally, you know, we want to develop these good leaders and it, you know, and you're like, if you really ask the question, why, you know, why do you want great leaders, you know, for a public company or a consumer company, it's easy, right? Because they're going to grow the business and make more money. But healthcare, you know, yes, obviously, hospitals, health systems, you know, want to want to grow, you know, revenue, be more profitable, what have you. But, and we, it's about the patients at the end of the day. So I mean, you know, how do you think of it, healthcare, education, leadership development, in terms of the patients and how patients are going to ultimately benefit from this. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, that's the consumerism factor uh, of which we've been talking about for how long. And then now it's all, we got to talk about systems thinking and design thinking. Mm -hmm. And you know what the gold foundation, I think has said it well, keeping healthcare human, that's what it all comes down to. And so, you know, when we truly think about it, we should be really assessing, analyzing, all the folks that have the privilege of working in a healthcare system around, you know, human communication, around skills with relating, empathy. You know, I mean, I'm sure you've seen the Cleveland Clinic video, which is very popular around, you know, being aware of your surroundings, you know, when they walk through a hospital. Mm-hmm. Yet we have people who still work in healthcare, even at a leadership level, who really can't communicate with anyone in any professional fashion or even do a presentation or do any sense of public speaking. I talk to leaders all the time and they're like, oh my gosh, like, you know, large healthcare systems, 20,000 people. And at the leadership level, they still have individuals who can't do that. And I say to them, well, then let's develop a program and solve it. Um, You know, someone has failed them along the way to not have invested in them to support that. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, in many ways, uh, first of all, and I know people, Uh, Some people will take great offense to this, but I have firmly believed that particularly as we have gotten larger in healthcare, all of our resources at a personal and professional development level have really been put at the top. 
Um, they haven't really been spread out through, you know, the entire organization. And, you know, despite the fact that I started in a community hospital and became part of a larger healthcare system, I can tell you firsthand how vastly different that was mm -hmm. and how we as a smaller community hospital were doing more for our people, not just managers, directors, and up, but at professional level roles, clinical and non-clinical. At a union place, uh, you know, with various unions, we were doing more for each and every one of our colleagues as a smaller community hospital than we were when we became part of that larger uh, healthcare network. And so, you know, we've got to get back to some elements of that because, you know, I was reading a Forbes article today and it was talking about Uber and how Uber is going to do more and more in health. And the reality of it is, is that when you hear what Uber is doing, Uber is basically saying, let's go back to what we used to do doctors doing house calls, mm -hmm. bringing care to the patients. And so if we're going to think of how we staff that, we've got to go back to the community hospital models where we kept healthcare closer to the community and not farther from the community. And I'm afraid the larger our healthcare systems have become, they um, have run much more like a business, which I don't fault people uh, with that type of thinking. But where I do raise question is, is, is when you've driven farther from the community. Um, that I think, and particularly, I believe strongly that if you've invested too much at the top, your management team, your leadership team, and forgotten all of the future folks who have the opportunity to be those leaders, that is really where I see a travesty. Uh, because again, having come from someone that worked his way into leadership, if I didn't get invested in, in that organization by the president CEO, by my senior vice president and such, I wouldn't have gotten to where I got. And so we've got to be thinking about that more importantly than ever. Yeah. Why do you think that the larger health systems have moved away from, you know, the community? Is it just like a profit driven thing? I mean, is it something different, you know, in, in your experience, lurking small to large and having you know, visibility to the whole? Yeah. Movement? You know, I think in some ways, um, you know, I'm sure some would argue it's definitely about profitability, but I would, I would tell you that it really does come down to the fact that, you know, in a lot of organizations, as they acquire hospitals, they immediately, the first thing they think about is, you know, for the non-clinical areas that oftentimes are the, are the areas that have the strongest touch points with the community, mm. they're brought to the system level, mm. immediately brought to the system level, budgets are brought to the system level. And so from a resource end, it's just common sense that if all that is being brought to the system level, then things are going to change. And that is very, very common. Now, there are some healthcare systems, large across our country, that have made very strategic, and I would add, the right decision to still ensure you have that local element of those types of areas that clearly have that touch point, you know, with the community. And, you know, if you think about it, larger healthcare systems, even at the leadership level, many of the folks that had been at the leadership level of those hospitals prior to acquisition are brought to the system as well. Well, you know, when they're brought to the system, they don't have the same level of, you know, responsibility and leadership. They're brought, you know, kind of smaller. This is what you do now. And so I do think that in some ways, there has to be a happy medium because certain communities are very different. I'll tell you, when, when, we, when we merged, uh, quote unquote merged, but it was really more of an acquisition because we were quite smaller, everything was brought to the system. And so, you know, we went from making decisions that were made truly locally 
to decisions that were truly made for us an hour away. And so, you know, yes, could we still share information and hope that that information would be part of the final decision? Um, but in the at the end of the day, even at the board level, which is where I often will talk about this, at the governance level of these types of situations, that changes. And so, you know, if you're a community hospital, you had your board, you know, now normally a couple of your board members may become part of the larger system board, but your local board is no longer intact. Sometimes they do, some, but a lot of times they don't. So things change. And, you know, my advice to uh, those that have the privilege of serving in those governing roles today is be thoughtful. Um, when you go through a merger and acquisition, fight as much as you can for your party uh, and for, for your, you know, for, for your community hospital and for your region, because things are very different uh, after a year or two, you know, after a merger and after an acquisition. Sometimes it's not, you know, there's definitely, you know, examples where it's not, but in a lot of cases it can be. And I think at the end, community can suffer. So you just made me think, you know, you've, you've held these administrative roles and, and, you know, we, we do see this shift, you know, there's crisis of rural health hospitals closing in communities that are now were underserved and now are not served because they're closing, you know, this and that, and sort of this, like you're saying, sort of a pulling back to these, these headquarters, how, you know, why, maybe why the shift for you from administration to this education kind of um, pathway, it almost seems, you know, how is that seems like something you, you think about it and, and, and are you know, concerned about in a way, you know, how do you see that helping hospital systems, big healthcare organizations realize, you know, that they need to maybe get back to those community levels or understand them a little bit better versus staying in administration and becoming the CEO of Common Spirit. And then you say, hey, we need to decentralize things. You know what I mean? So, yeah, you know, it's, it's definitely an interesting element. And, and you know, I'll say this. Um, I was really fortunate to be where I was for nine plus years, you know, in a community hospital and then ultimately become part of a larger system. But I will tell you that, that um, ultimately that larger system wouldn't have been the place for me in, in what it looked like compared to what it was uh, you know, for, for the majority of the time prior. And a lot of that is, is just how certain organizations choose to lead and how certain organizations choose to handle themselves after, uh, after a merger and acquisition. Um, with that said, you know, and, and I'm not pinpointing any organization, you know, with that comment, I think the reality of it is, is that we, we have to remember that at the core of merger and acquisitions are people. And we still have to, you know, think of, um, you know, when we're talking about today in 2021, the great resignation, you know, if we look back at so much of healthcare that have gone through merger and acquisitions, guess who have been hurt the most? The people. Um, so many merger and acquisitions end up in resignate or uh, excuse me, end up in unemployment, uh, you know, end up in severances, end up in people not being no longer part of the organization. And so I, you know, uh, obviously that's going to ha happen at times because there may be duplicity, there may be, you know, certain roles that just no longer fit within, uh, you know, the operation. However, I do think that being more thoughtful particularly around that could be a tremendous benefit because while someone may not fit in a certain role 
I find it hard to believe that you couldn't figure something else out for them, sure. particularly, you know, given how large organizations have become. And so, you know, I, uh, to answer your question, I'm still young enough that I have the privilege uh, at some point to choose to get back in. Mm. Um, when I was part of uh, what was then Pocono Health System, um, there was a lot of action, to be honest with you, parts of me that very much thought I would go the CEO track. Mm -hmm. um, but then, you know, then we went through a transition. Uh, my president and CEO was, uh, was, uh, was asked to resign. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the reasons the board asked that is that she did not want to go forward with the merger. Mm -hmm. uh, mind you, she felt there was another model that could be looked into. Um, one of which included strategic partnerships, which you're seeing more and more of today, yeah. where to your point about rural hospitals, you know, can you align services even with another healthcare system? You know, can you align relationships with a national network mm -hmm. in a way that, you know, you still remain a standalone, but you have the benefit of sharing costs and sharing value across, you know, multiple enterprises. She believes strongly in that approach. And now you see some of that more and more today, where you see organizations like Quorum Health uh, which is in Tennessee, you know, which is working with, you know, a number of community hospitals, helping them remain in the communities that they serve and still providing, you know, immense benefits so that they can still be there um, and not get necessarily gobbled up by another healthcare system. So, you know, I think, I think, um, you know, it's really interesting, you know, for me having been there. And then to be honest with you, I was on the merger integration team, uh, you know, for my hospital. Uh, when we went through that process. And so, you know, having sat there um, and been, you know, on the due diligence side of, of all of that and working through the legal process and such, there's a lot that you learn in that process. And uh, I'm a firm believer that sometimes um, you do have to go outside to help make change occur before you do go back inside. And so, you know, for me, the opportunity to help think of how we staff for the future at all levels of healthcare, um, you know, the opportunity to work still very, very closely, you know, with, with healthcare, um, but help, help in a very supportive way, think of what it is that can help transform the workforce of the future is, is of keen interest to me as well. So what do you think, this kind of ties into a little bit, um, and thank you for sharing that, you know, about kind of your story and thinking through, you know, being at those different leadership levels, seeing merger and acquisition. I mean, it's great experience. Like you said, you know, sometimes working somewhere smaller, you get such a broad perspective, which is incredible. Um, but it, it sort of reminds me and ties into this sort of idea of the status quo or complacency in healthcare. And it's almost that mergers and acquisitions are the status quo. If you're big, you go get more. Like universities actually do the same thing. Is the, the bigger we are, the better we are. But like, you know, is that true? So, I mean, what do you think drives that status quo or that complacency? And then how does education, like what the work you're trying to do now, play into getting us past the status quo and that complacency? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, healthcare is definitely the type of industry that has done things for so long the same way. Um, and in many ways, I would definitely say that that a lot of it is also because some of the same people who have been part of organizations that make those decisions have also been there for a very, very long time, whether in that current organization uh, or have gone to another organization. Mm -hmm. And so 
you know, let's be honest, a lot of leaders like to surround themselves with people who also think like them. Um, and so, you know, when we get to the core of that, let's think about that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're not going to bring those change agents or the people who think differently necessarily that that would cause that change. Um, and so to your to your question of how do you truly change that? It's not easy. Um, but I would argue that because of what we're seeing right now, uh, particularly with the great resignation, particularly with the fact that so many C-suite leaders at healthcare systems across our country are retiring. I mean, you, you get Beckers, you get all the others yeah. every day. There's how many uh, at large, medium-sized, you name it. We're also seeing some healthcare systems that became systems are now selling off hospitals because they realized they, they took you know, too many bites and really weren't able to sustain um, in the manner that they thought they could. And so I definitely believe that because of the current climate um, and, and the fact that we're also going to see uh, under the current administration in Washington have a larger push than ever before for health, you know, for diversity, equity, and inclusion in healthcare. And there are ways to regulate, uh, of which there's no doubt that CMS and, and others uh, will, will certainly do that, that we're going to see systems really have to think differently um, about a multitude of areas and think differently about population health and think differently about addressing social determinants of health. And you know what? A lot of that goes right back to what we saw our community in rural hospitals, critical access hospitals, doing for so long and doing for so well. And so uh, if I were, you know, in a C-suite position today um, and we're at a larger system and had, you know, smaller hospitals that were particularly in my network, I would go back to them and let's see what they did well for so long because it, there's no doubt that there's going to be aspects of that that come back um, because of the nature of where we're headed. And so uh, the other thing I would say is, is that because of the staffing crisis, which some people don't want to call it that, but, but we're, we're pretty much at crisis point. Yeah, I, I would uh, say. You know, yeah. when, when you look and talk, I mean, when you have hospitals canceling procedures and you have, um, you know, you have people walking out each and every day because of burnout, um, you know, a whole host of things. Um, now, obviously... Uh, being uh, very pro-public health, I have an opinion on those that walk out uh, who don't want to get vaccinated, but that's a different topic and, yeah. and certainly a different day. But in my view, what this also has called for in a very different manner than probably has called for before is that healthcare also has to think about what it is and how we define a healthcare career journey and trajectory clinically and non-clinically in the mm -hmm. K through 12 space more effectively than ever before. And then also through the post-secondary level, we've gotta be thinking about how we attract people. Why is it to, why is it you wanna work in healthcare? Whether, wherever you fit in the continuum of healthcare, why and what should we be wanting to tell them about that should give them that hope? Because the reality of it is, is that the media doesn't help uh, because right now, you know, you hear all the negative aspects, but you know what? Let's think back and let's think about what you can do in healthcare. And let's think about all the good that comes out of it. And so, you know, we've got to do a better job of reaching consumers, um, not just of care, but consumers of healthcare in terms of our future workforce and helping them understand where the pathways and pipelines are. We have truly, and I say this respectfully, in academia and in healthcare, assumed 
that that was understood. We've assumed it. We have not intently uh, or intentionally developed a strategy and done so with grit to ensure that we're truly helping people understand what a true pipeline and pathways are. And I think if we, if we do that uh, in a very sincere manner, we could develop uh, the workforce of the future. And if we do it with an eye uh, and an ear towards diversity, equity, and inclusion, we could also achieve developing a workforce that is truly devoted to looking like our, the patients that we serve um, and looking, you know, not just looking, but also listening um, and, and really serving alongside, you know, through all those important notions. Yeah, I was just having the conversation, uh, you know, a couple weeks ago with someone about a strategic human capital management and the taking for granted of people who are in healthcare for do of doctors and nurses, especially because so many are, you know, feel this deep purpose to be a doctor. And like you said, you know, we, we, again, take it for granted and just say, well, they're, they're here and this is what they want to do. And we can do all this other stuff and create all these systems around and, but they'll still always be here. They've wanted to be a doctor since they were 11, like they're not going anywhere. But so your point is, is, um, is an important one about more intention and grit behind understanding. Cause I talked to doctors too, who they love being doctors, but they want a little more or different in their career, leadership, entrepreneurship, these different things, and they don't know where to go. There, yep. you know, do they just do they get an MBA? Do they just kind of hang out? Do they stop practice? You know, and there's I don't. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of structure or guiding force around that. Yep, and and then also how their is their healthcare system going to support them in doing that? You yeah. know, depending on how their contract is written, or um, you know, I've worked with many doctors, and to your point. You know, one of them, an incredible entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, when I talk to him all the time now, I mean, he's involved in how many different startups all in the digital health space. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, to his credit, he was able to figure out how to do that and still also be a high performing, one of the top high performing physicians, both quality and procedure wise, you know, for that healthcare mm -hmm. system. But to your point, we haven't necessarily built that culture and that environment that helps them understand that. And I think, you know, without question, particularly in healthcare, we have to, that's that systems thinking approach. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, if we sit here and think that people are going to just come into healthcare and do the same job or something similar for 40 plus years, which is what we've seen for so long, then we're going to have the same situation of a great resignation for far long. And the other thing I will say, is that if we're gonna if we're gonna sit here and you know still have leadership teams you know across the board that don't truly look like and also relate to the workforce, we'll also continue to have issues like that as well. Do you think that? And um, and I want to be respectful of your time, but I did, I gotta ask because we we talked about a couple of times you know diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, and having a workforce that looks like the patient population. Um, you know, historically speaking, and now today too, I mean, to become a doctor, to become a nurse, even, you know, a CNA, even, you know, LPN, like all at every level, it's an expensive, expensive undertaking. So I mean, what, what do we do about that? And what are the risks? I think the risks are pretty obvious and having those high hurdles to have 
underserved populations who are underserved get into a position of clinical and leadership and think, you know, how do we bridge that gap? Yeah. Well, I mean, the way you bridge that gap is through healthcare systems really truly realizing that that it's it's corporate social responsibility truly to develop pathway programs that they fund, you know, within, you know, marginalized communities. And so, you know, a good example is Common Spirit, you know, under Lloyd Dean's leadership, um, you know, launched a hundred million dollar partnership with Morehouse School of Medicine. Um, you know, that partnership is entirely on bringing more, uh, you know, black and brown uh, physicians and providers into Common Spirit and how to do it in a way that supports them to your exact point where, you know, they may not be able to afford it, but you know what, there's a need for the healthcare system. So they've got to step it up um, and help support that happening. And so we've got to really think very uh, creatively and, and really, again, think of how you bring academia together, foster a solution, and then think about you as the healthcare system, how you can help fund that. Because to your point, if we are going to leave you know, the students on their own to figure out that path, they're not going to, unfortunately. Everything is stacked up against them. That's why even Common Spirit launched the Equity Impact Scholarship, which, you know, Dignity Health Global Education is, is, is running. Um, and it includes all of our programs right now from the vantage point that at all levels of healthcare, whether it's certificate, whether it's degree, uh, you know, in this case, bachelor and master's, we've got to also have more equity in the educational process to bring more equity into the healthcare system. And so, you know, there are organizations like Common Spirit, there's others um, as well, Novant Health, I know in North Carolina um, and others, you know, that, that truly understand that you've gotta be intentional, excuse me, intentional about these things. Um, and that means academic partnerships, that means truly embedding it in the whole system. Because the other element, Preston, is that once they get into the system, if they don't feel supported, they don't feel empowered, they don't feel that they truly, you know, feel like they're part of a community uh, in which one they really want to be a part of, we're going to lose them as well. And so we've got to truly embed that into the whole process. Well, listen, I have, I don't know, 1700 more questions. Um, so we're obviously going to have to do this again. But I just I can't thank you enough for your time um, and your perspective. I learned a lot, and I, I'm sure that anybody who comes across this and listens to this will also learn a lot. Where can people find more about you and, and more about Dignity Health uh, Global Education? Yeah. So, yeah. So obviously, people can find me, you know, right on LinkedIn. Um, you know, certainly they can find Dignity Health Global Education just at dhg.org. Um, and they'll see, you know, tons of information about us, the programs we offer, um, certainly an opportunity to connect with me, you know, on there as well. Great. Well, Jeffrey, um, I'm right after this, I'm going to send you an email for when we can do this again, because I, like I said, this is fantastic. And I have so many more questions. So thank you so much for your time. And um, just really appreciate you being here. Yeah, thank you as well. Thanks for having me. Uh -huh.